Well, good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Can I thank you all for the patience and grace you have shown uh, throughout the major refurbishment project which has thrown our lives into disarray over these past two months. Your experience has reminded me of the golden rule of project management. There is never any light at the end of the tunnel. There's just a man with a torch bringing more problems. <laughs> now, this morning we embarked on a major teaching series in John's Gospel. And as Scott told us this evening, we start an equally important series on the early chapters of Genesis. And it is my privilege this evening to preach on the magnificent opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. So let's consider these beautifully crafted words that explain the most profound questions about the human condition. They open up for us the relationship between humanity and the universe we inhabit. So we're going to read Genesis Chapter 1 from verse 1 through to verse 3 of chapter 2. I get to say the most obvious thing for those of you with a pew Bible, we're on page (laughs) 1. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kindness, livestock and creeping things, and 
beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In this talk, I'd like to accomplish three things. First, we're going to consider the overall structure of Genesis. Uh, and then we'll use that context to answer the question, what is the gospel according to Genesis chapter 1? And finally, we'll see how our passage speaks directly into our culture's anxieties over ecological questions, climate change, biodiversity, and animal welfare. So structure, the gospel, and cultural anxieties. Now, before we think about Genesis as a whole... Let me remind you of a helpful way to view our passage for this evening. The creation of the world is described within the framework of six days. But scholars have long pointed out that the six days are carefully grouped into two groups of three, uh, as shown on the screen. The first triad of days one, two, and three seem to correspond to the second triad of days four, five, and six. So in simple terms, the first three days are all about providing form or structure to something that was formless or chaotic. But then days four, five, and six are about filling the created but empty forms. So the first triad is about forming structures. The second is about filling the structures. So, for example, in day two, the seas and the sky are formed. And then in day five, we see those structures filled with fish and birds. On day three, we see the dry land and vegetation being formed. In day six, we see that land populated with land animals and with human beings. Even if you go back to day one, you see the distinction between light and darkness is formed, while in day four, we see the space being filled with light bearers called the sun, moon, and stars. Now, the parallelism isn't perfect, but it's strong enough to jump off the page. Now, the interesting thing is that we find exactly the same structure when we pan the camera back and look at the book of Genesis as a whole. What did I do there? That's it. Everybody agrees that Genesis divides into two big sections. There's the first 11 chapters, chapter 1 to 11, which deal with the creation of the world. And then from chapter 12 through to the final chapter, chapter 50, we have the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in actual fact, the three big blocks in the second section are better understood as three pairs of a father and a son. 
So we start with the story of Abraham and Isaac, then we have the story of Isaac and Jacob, and finally we get to the story of Jacob and his son Joseph. And one of the curious features of the first 11 chapters is that it tells the story of creation three times. There are three creation accounts. Just as we have four gospel records in the New Testament, we have here three narratives which tell the story of creation from three different perspectives. And the first creation story is the one we've just read in chapter 1. The second one is covered in chapters 2 through 4. And the final creation story runs through 5 to 11. So let me now quickly summarise the big storylines from the second half, from the story of the patriarchs. So, the three big blocks that make up the second section of Genesis. And I'm going to ask the non-Christians in the room, if you're here tonight and you're not Christian, uh, you're particularly welcome. And I'm going to ask you to pay particular attention uh, for this next couple of minutes. Because it's going to surprise you. In the first story we meet Abraham and his son Isaac. And the rest of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Abraham's life is an illustration of the concept of faith. Faith in God. Now, if you understand what, if you, if you want to understand what Christian faith looks like, says the Apostle Paul, look at Abraham's life. But why should anybody trust God? If I am to trust God, I have first better be convinced that He is trustworthy. Now, I probably don't need to tell you. In fact, anybody in the room, I don't need to tell you that Abraham's biggest test of faith occurs in chapter twenty-two, when he is called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. Of course, God intervenes and rescues Isaac. But this story is used by the author of Genesis to explain to us one of the most profound concepts in the universe. He uses it to explain to us what love is. Love is never mentioned in Genesis until you get to this point. Now, why does this matter at all? Well, let me put it this way. This ancient text defines love by telling the story of a father who sacrifices his son on a hill outside what later became called Jerusalem. It is an astonishing prototype of the story of the cross of Christ. This is love, says the Apostle John. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the second story in part two uh, of Genesis concerns Isaac, the son of Abraham. And a great deal of this story centers on how Isaac seeks out, uh, falls in love with, and then marries his bride, a girl called Rebecca. Through their union, God's purposes for the whole world they are put in motion. And the New Testament, as many of you know, uses that story, that ancient love story, to open up the cosmic love story uh, of Christ and his church. Christ came to seek and love a bride for himself, and in so doing, humanity's destiny is regained for all eternity. And the final story in this trio concerns Jacob's son, Joseph. We all know the story well. Well, most of us do. Joseph's brothers hate him for no reason. They set out to kill him. But they end up throwing him into a pit before selling him into slavery. Joseph is an entirely innocent man, but he ends up in a prison house. But he is raised up by God to the point where he rules the entire ancient world. So with unbelievable graciousness, Joseph then rescues his brothers from famine and treats them with grace and kindness. Now, here's the point. Even if you're not a Christian here tonight, it must surely impress you that the entire Christian gospel is described in prototype form in this ancient book. We, like Abraham, can trust God because we have seen the Father give up his Son for us all. As members of the church, the Christian church, we are being formed into the bride of Christ, the entity that will govern the world to come. 
and God's new humanity living in perfect harmony with the one who sought and loved them. And the whole story ends with the son who was rejected by his own being raised up from the pit to rule the entire world. And that summary of the second part of the book can help us make sense now of chapters 1 to 11. I'm sure you noticed when we read uh, that first chapter. The beautiful balance in how humanity's role in the universe is discussed. The universe is, is a big and sometimes scary place. It's full of supernovas and pulsar stars and tsunamis. The earth doesn't have its own power source. We rely on the sun and the moon to give us light and heat. It's one of the key messages of Genesis 1. Now why is the universe set up like that? It's to remind us that human beings are not self-existent, self-sufficient or self-defining beings. We do not create ourselves. We are finite, dependent, contingent beings. So the contemporary idea that human beings are autonomous is laughable. Switch the sum off for a few seconds and see how that theory works out. And Genesis 1 balances that truth with a concept that seems contradictory. We read how God gave great responsibility to Adam and Eve, our first parents. Humanity is given the job of stewarding the rest of creation, protecting it, bringing order, helping it to flourish. But how can fragile, dependent little beings take responsibility for something like the whole earth, which it is impossible for us to control. And we've just uncovered a question that confronts us at various points in life. How do I take responsibility for something I cannot control? Maybe a mum or dad is faced with a rebellious child, and you ask yourself, how can you be responsible for something you can't control? Church elders ask that question every week of the year. Well, look across to the corresponding block in the structure of Genesis and you find the answer. Faith. It is faith which allows you to take responsibility for things you cannot control. You see, Adam was supposed to be God's viceroy, he, but he didn't have the power within himself to grab creation by the scruff of the neck. The only way he could do his job was by exercising faith in God. And as we all know, he failed in that task. And so, God the Father and God the Son had to embark on the great plan of salvation. A plan which would give us evidence we needed to trust God again. And it's interesting to compare the second creation story with this second story of the patriarchs. The second creation story is found in chapters 2, 3, 4 of Genesis. And as Johnny is going to tell us next week, we are going to see humanity fall, run away from God, cover up their shame. And then in chapter 3, we will see a man groan under the frustrations of a fallen world. That's Adam. And then chapter 4 with Cain, we see a man who has lost his very purpose as a human being. Cain discovers there's something worse than death. He wanders around the earth, existing, but with no purpose to his existence. And he represents all that is wrong with humanity today. Now I move across and think about the second patriarchal story. It's a prototype of the story of Christ and his church. And once again, you can see how the two blocks fit together. In the second creation story, as we watch the first couple fall, we're watching human destiny being lost. Man ends up having lost his existential purpose. But the story of Christ and his church is the second creation story in reverse. Alienation and shame are replaced by intimacy and love. Humanity's destiny is restored for all eternity. And the third and final creation story start once again with Adam, 
but focuses on the man called Noah. If you've ever read Genesis 5, I almost have to preach on Genesis 5, it's just a big list of deaths. Uh, so that one down well in Scrabble. Um, but if you've ever read it, it's like a relentless drumbeat. Time and time again you get the same phrase, and then he died, and then he died. Because of sin, Adam and his descendants died. And the theme of death becomes even more prominent when we get to the story of Noah and the flood. When God's horrific judgment falls, humanity dies. All of them. Well, nearly all. A tiny group are saved. They aren't saved from judgment. They are saved through judgment. Because they were hidden inside the ark. And so they come through the waters of judgment into a cleansed world that will never be judged like that again. Who will save us from death? Who will act as the ark in our lives when we cross the Jordan? Well, look again at the corresponding story from the second part of Genesis. The trajectory of Joseph's life follows the story of Christ's life as told in Philippians 2. Joseph went down into the pit, into the prison house, before being raised up to the pinnacle of the ancient world. And because of the strange and wonderful journey he took, he was able to rescue his brothers from death through starvation. Now, if you take a step back from the details, you can now begin to see the overall shape of Genesis. The three creation stories describe humanity's story from Eden to the complex mess that we're in today. But thank God there is another story running alongside it. In each patriarchal story, we hear about the work of a son. And because of his work, humanity can regain its destiny and escape the fear of death. Now, I'm conscious that we have covered some difficult terrain at a brisk gallop. But all that hard work allows us to return to our passage and ask, what is the gospel according to Genesis 1? That's the cutest picture I've ever seen. <laughs> there are two big gospel truths that we learn from passages tonight. The first thing is about God, and the second is about our place in the universe. If you really want to get a sense of what creating this universe was like for God... I urge you to read words that we sang earlier in that fantastic hymn, Indescribable. Words from Job chapter 38 and 39. I read a woman this afternoon, and they made me want to laugh and cry at the same time. The first thing we learn is that God is no control freak. When we analysed the six days of creation earlier, we saw that God formed structures so that he could fill them with beauty and life. So God only puts boundaries in place to maximise flourishing. Within his divine boundaries, there is enormous freedom. Go forth and multiply his divine command. And so in Job, you can almost hear the Lord laugh in delight when he hears the mad braying of a wild donkey, or when he hears the snorting of a fearless warhorse. You can hear the tenderness in his voice when he talks about he watches over a young doe as she crouches down to give birth. He looks at two partridges having a marital dispute and he thinks that's fantastic. I'm sure sometimes he and the archangel Michael watch a pod of dolphins having a race just for the fun of it. He just loves them to see them enjoying themselves. And we also learn that God is no grey utilitarian. Our Lord once told us to consider the lilies of the field. Now, when you think about it, why would anybody go to all the trouble of creating something as beautiful as a lily, knowing that it will only last for a week or two? Well, that's what God is like. He's no utilitarian bureaucrat interested only in cost-benefit analysis. Look at the effort he puts into every sunset you have ever seen. If you listen to some theologians, you might end up 
thinking of God as a sort of moral equation. Nothing more than a list of moral qualities. Nothing more than religious words wiped down with antiseptic. Read the Bible, and you encounter a God who invented the hippopotamus. Can you imagine what the angels said to each other when they saw one for the first time? What is that thing? Our God is endlessly creative. He loves beauty and vitality and creaturely freedom. In the language of Genesis 1, he thinks it is good. Thirdly, we learn that God is a patient craftsman. At the start of the chapter, uh, we find the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And the deep here is chaos. But it's a good sort of chaos. I sometimes watch my sister bake a cake. I help her eat it at the end. (laughs) (laughs) At the start of the process, the kitchen does look pretty chaotic. There's flour and fruit and eggs and bowls all over the place. Now, that sort of chaos is very different from the chaos that would incur if I dropped the freshly baked cake on the floor. So, in this chapter, we are watching the divine craftsman gradually bring order so that flourishing can be maximized. And notice that creation in Genesis 1 is built up in logical steps. First, space-time comes into existence. Then we see the emergence of inanimate matter. Later, organic life emerges in the form of vegetation. The seas begin to be populated by fish and skies with birds. Then come the land mammals, and finally humanity itself. The sheer genius of the craftsman is only revealed when the entire ecosystem is in place. And finally we learn how God went about making the world. I'm sure you noticed the little phrase, and God said, repeated time and time again in the text. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, And we thought this morning about the Apostle John's words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So every creative act was performed by a Word of God. And so this whole universe has meaning, precisely because it was made by the Word of God. It's not a chance happening. He initiated it. Remember, God is all intelligent, all reasonable, all rational, purposeful, and meaningful. Creation gets its meaning from the word of God, because he has imprinted his code in material and given meaning to the universe. Now, when you combine my third and fourth points, we arrive at a conclusion that some Christians will find unpalatable. Genesis 1 has taught us about a God who is a patient craftsman, who builds his creation up in a series of logical steps. And each new phase of the creation project is triggered by the injection of new information into the system by the divine word. Now, that interpretation isn't remotely controversial. It sits on the surface of the text. But it presents a real problem to those Christians who believe in a theory called theistic evolution. Francis Collins, Alistair McGrath and Tim Keller would be some of the names in this camp. I hold all those men in the highest regard but in this topic I must part company with them. Theistic evolutionists say that God started the whole thing off, but then I basically went on holiday, didn't intervene at all, and allowed evolution to run its course without any supernatural intervention. They argue that God somehow gifted creation with the capabilities to organise and to transform itself into new forms over the course of time. And I'm going to quote Francis Collins directly so I can't be accused of creating a straw man. He says this, No special supernatural intervention is involved once evolution got underway. Humans, like everything else, are a result of evolutionary processes. 
But as we've just seen, Genesis 1 directly contradicts that idea. There is continual intervention from the divine word. Animate life only emerges from inanimate life following a word from God. Land mammals emerge only after another word, and so on. Theistic evolution claims that there is no scientifically detectable evidence for God being involved in the process of evolution. So if I concede that since the Big Bang until the emergence of Homo sapiens, there is no good reason to believe in God, isn't a special pleading to embrace this deity when it comes to biblical miracles? If I don't believe in a God who is active in the development of life, why should I believe in a God who parts the Red Sea, or who turns water into wine, or who raises Jesus from the dead? While I'm talking about the relationship between Genesis and science, let me make the point that the Bible never tells us how old the universe is. And the arguments here can only be understood by careful reference to the original language. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The use of the perfect tense in verse 1 shows that space-time comes into existence before the first day. So we have simply no idea how much time passed before verse 3 gets underway. Then there's the question of the days themselves. In the Hebrew, the definite article is missing for the first five days. So Genesis talks about the sixth day and the seventh day. But in the original language, when you get to the first five, it's a first day, a second day, a third day, and so on. So on a purely textual basis, there is no need to insist that the six days of creation are contiguous, that they come straight after each other. There could, in fact, be very long periods of time between them. Now, the points I'm making here only apply to the age of the universe and the age of the earth. There are much stronger arguments for saying from Scripture that human beings are a special creation made by God less than 10,000 years ago. But the age of humanity is a quite a separate question from the age of the universe. Anyway, that was just an aside. The main point here is that Genesis 1 teaches us a great deal about the nature of God. But it also teaches us a lot about our place in the universe. And again, I hope the non-Christians in the room will allow me to address them directly for a minute. The Bible contains a long, slightly obscure prophecy written by a man called Jeremiah. And buried in the depths of that book, we find an amazing quote. The prophet's talking about a society that has run away from God, shut God out of their lives, and he says this, They say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs on me. Now I think that verse is the best description of the theory of evolution ever given. Think about it. If you've accepted an atheistic worldview, if you believe that you're merely the product of blind forces and chance, then who's your father? If you're just a blob of biological slime that emerged from carbon atoms and minerals, then you can walk up to a big lump of wood and stone and say, Hello, Dad. That thought sends a shiver down my spine. Do you really want to live in a universe like that? One that's ruled by blind, pitiless indifference? Do you think the law of gravity cares about you? Contrast that bleak worldview with the profound existential security that comes from knowing yourself as a creature made by this good God of Genesis 1. Now imagine what it would be like to know yourself as a child of that God. 
To be able to look beyond the stuff of this universe and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a completely different word view, isn't it? Look at the lumps of wood around you. I'm not talking about the people sitting beside you. That'd be a good the lumps of wood around you on the door frames. Is that your only father? Is physical reality the only thing you can hold on to when you're bruised and afraid and cold and alone? For the Christian, you see, this universe feels like home. Yes, it's been vandalized by sin, and so it can be a place of tears and sorrow at times. But behind the stuff of the universe, there is a loving, personal creator. And by trusting him, the Christian can balance the realities of being dependent and still being a responsible agent. So we can take responsibility for things we cannot control. That is the gospel, according to Genesis 1. And just before we close this study, let me make a few brief comments about the contribution Genesis 1 makes to the current anxieties felt by our culture related to climate change, biodiversity, and animal welfare. Genesis 1 verse 28 has been blamed by many on the progressive left for all the ecological disasters that await us in the future. But that charge is unfair. The term which the older translations call dominion is better translated as stewardship. The Bible nowhere gives mankind the freedom to rape and pillage the earth's natural resources. In fact, scripture often rebukes men and women for mistreating God's creation. It was the Enlightenment, not Christianity, which brought about this idea of man being master over nature. The scriptures see human beings much more as members of a community of creaturehood. There is a heavy weight of scientific evidence in support of climate change. But even if the Christian privately believes that these risks are overhyped, it is important, I would suggest, for the cause of the gospel that we respect the views of young people who are so anxious about ecological issues. I once gave a talk on veganism to a group of Northern Irish Christians. <laughs> There's a whole talk in that, anyway. And I came in for some criticism afterwards, because my audience thought the topic was irrelevant to the gospel. And my jaw almost dropped when I heard that feedback. Have you no non-Christian friends, I asked him? Have you any idea how deeply this ecological anxiety has infected every aspect of young people's thinking in wider culture? Now, at a philosophical level, the Green Movement represents a serious move back to pantheism in our culture. It also offers young unbelievers a pseudo-morality that allows them to generate a sense of meaning in their lives. But that analysis should not lead us to pour scorn or sneer at their ecological anxieties. So stop rubbishing the story told by young environmentalists. Instead, work out a biblical model for the care of the planet and show why it is a better story than pantheism. And we can use that better story to reach out to a generation of young people who are being tortured by fear that they'll be snuffed out by a universe controlled by dumb forces. Is it a certain truth that the book of Revelation does predict some awful ecological disasters? which come about because of mankind's sinful behaviour. But that should never lead anyone to claim that this planet doesn't matter. You know, people who say, who cares about CO2 emissions if this old planet is just temporary? Well, God thinks this old planet matters. He loves it deeply. And so it would be very wrong for any Christian to treat it 
with Gnostic content. Remember, we're going to spend all eternity, not in heaven, but on the new earth. New Jerusalem comes down to the new earth in Revelation 21. And in some ways it won't be all that different from the creation we have so enjoyed reading about in Genesis 1. If God is going to give us responsibility for looking after the new earth, I would not want to have to admit to him that I had shown no interest in looking after this one. Anyway, we're done for tonight. By trusting God, the Christian can balance the realities of being dependent and still being a responsible agent. So we can take responsibilities, responsibility for things we cannot control. And that is the gospel, according to Genesis 1. I'll be delighted to talk to you afterwards. We're going to have a final song. So I'll hand back to the back.